from We First and Goal 17 Media. Welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. Today, my guest is Rick Ridgway, the former VP of Environmental Initiatives at Patagonia, who remains very close to the company and continues to consult for them. He's also the author of an amazing new book called Life Lived Wild. Rick, welcome to Lead With We. Uh, Simon, it's great to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I've got a full disclosure to everybody. Rick and I go a little ways back. You know, I think it was 10, 12 years ago, through a mutual friend, somebody said, hey, you should meet this guy, Rick Ridgway, because I was interested in purposeful business. And not knowing anything about me, he kindly met in West LA and we had a great conversation and he really inspired me to believe that business as a force for good was possible. And since then, I consider him a friend, a colleague, a mentor. So I'm thrilled to have some time to share your insights with everyone, Rick. Welcome. Well, thank you again, Simon. Those were kind words. So Rick, you know, you obviously had a career before Patagonia. Yet to many, you're synonymous with Pat- Patagonia. So tell us a little bit about you know, your career as a mountaineer, as a writer, as a filmmaker, and then how you came into connection with Patagonia, which then set that next chapter of your life in progress. As a young boy, I became obsessed with uh, climbing and mountaineering, adventuring and, and exploring. And I learned to make a living at that through photography, uh, filmmaking, uh, storytelling, lecturing, um, consulting in uh, the outdoor business. Uh, And then in the mid-1980s, I started my own business, a a content licensing agency uh, that licensed uh, film and photography to advertising agencies. And we specialized, as you might imagine, in in outdoor imagery. I sold that company very successfully uh, in 2000 and then returned to uh, filmmaking and writing. And then two years later, I got an invitation from uh, Patagonia uh, from my climbing partner, Yvonne Chouinard, who uh, founded and still owns Patagonia with his wife, to join the company. I asked my wife if that was a good idea. I was a little hesitant to work for a company owned by one of my best friends. And she said, you know, Rick, you always like to tell me you, you like to try new things. So why don't you try this thing called having a regular job? Right. So uh, I joined the company in 2004 as a full-time employee. I had a 15-year run there uh, that was terrific for me, terrific for the company. Uh, And then uh, during the pandemic, I uh, decided to make a transition, uh, left the company. And and now I'm back to uh, writing and filmmaking. But very importantly to me, I spend half of my time now uh, doing volunteer work for uh, conservation and environmental nonprofits. It's like I am in a, a dream position. And I mean, obviously, the theme of your life, your commitment to the natural world is clear as day. And, you know, sometimes you take that for granted with people. You just presume that's the way they are. But where did that start? Was it that National Geographic subscription that your mum gave you that you talk about in Life Live Wild? Was it, you know, Jim Whitaker, the first American to kind of, you know, summit Everest? What was it that made you so committed to the environment? Well, it's all those things. But as I explained in the book, Simon, it it was a long arc, an arc that's lasted my entire lifetime. You know, an arc from in the beginning, uh, focusing on the adventures, focusing on the explorations, focusing on the 
friends and colleagues I was going with and the friendships that I was building from those experiences, focusing on the places where I was doing the adventures. And then over a lifetime, it switched from that little by little, um, experience by experience, to saving the places where I was having those adventures in my youth. And, and that's what I think the theme of the book is as well. I didn't set it out that way, but I discovered that writing the book, that that's been the arc of my life. Interesting. From adventures in the places to a commitment to saving the places. And those places are the, are, are the natural places on our home planet Earth. I want to push in on that a little bit more because it's so interesting. If you look at any landscape, there are those that want to stay safe in the foreground, close to home. There are those that will go in the middle ground and stretch themselves and, and t- be adventurous. Then there are people like you that want to go to the most remote ends of the planet, the most extreme, the edge of the world, as you talk about. What is it about that? Why was it? Is it, you know, and also I think relatedly, you know, is that what you mean by wild? Because sometimes, you know, life live wild. When you think about the word wild, people think it's reckless, but you seem drawn to the most remote and wild places. Why? Well, uh, in the book, and to me, uh, I use the word wild to mean what's left on our home planet of wild nature, nature that is relatively untouched by the hand of we human beings. And I've been drawn to those places on the planet since I was a a little boy. Um, When I was a 10 and 12 years old, um, I got into a business uh, raising pheasants with my grandfather, and I had a backyard zoo uh, with about 15 species of pheasants. Uh, And I could tell visitors to my backyard zoo every place that they came from. And those were the places that captivated my imagination that I said, I want to go there someday. I want to see these birds in the wild. I want to experience wild nature in those places. And in fact, if you look in the background here, see those pheasants up on my wall there? Yeah, Yeah. well, those are prints of pheasants I bought when I was 12 years old. I've kept them with me my whole life. And they represent to me what wild nature means. Uh, So it's been a central part of of who I am since I was a, a, a young boy. So if it's the natural world in its purest form, and by going there, you felt the need to protect it. And the reason I'm leaning in on this so heavily is because a lot of people would say, what's so unique about Patagonia? What's that secret source? Why is it so special? Why are they at the forefront of this you know, business for good movement for so long? And I, I think it really turns on the alignment between who you are as a person and what you do in your daily life. They're so fully integrated. It's seamless that it's just living and breathing the way you're showing up in the world. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would say that's fair. And, uh, you know, also that brings up the idea or the topic, as it were, of, um, you know, what lessons in nature might actually uh, apply to business. Like it's a it's interesting question to ask what people like myself or my friends Yvonne Chouinard who founded uh, Patagonia, Doug Tompkins, a really close friend who founded the North Face and sold that to found the women's wear company Esprit. These are my climbing partners. You know we've spent so much time in deep wild nature and we've brought our what we've learned from there. You know back to sea level, applied them to our businesses and 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 those businesses have been successful. I mean. Obviously, Patagonia and the North Face together have uh, changed uh, and even founded the whole industry of uh, outdoor recreation equipment. And I want to stress this for everybody listening, because my experience of the corporate world or often often entrepreneurship is 
We do what we do in business. And if we can, we can integrate who we are as a whole human being. But if I hear you correctly, you really are about celebrating who you are as people with your peers and bringing that back into business. So you lead with who you are and your experience of the natural world rather than it being the exception to the rule. It's totally integrated. It, it, it completely is. Um, you know, when you spend time in, in nature, and I mean wild nature, you know, where, where nature is running the show. <laughs> right, right. That you learn things about yourself uh, and about who all of us as human beings came from uh, that create an awareness that you can bring back and apply to your life at sea level to to your businesses. Um, and, you know, at, at, the, at the highest level, I'm amazed how few business people seem to realize this, but at the, at the very highest level, all of our businesses, whether we're in business of consumer goods or services, all of our businesses depend on a healthy planet. And that's because we need a healthy and renewable uh, stream of resources. And, and in turn, we need to all remember that all societies depend on a, a healthy planet. And that in turn, you can't have a healthy market without a healthy societies or healthy markets without healthy, healthy societies. So there's this deep connection between healthy business and healthy planet that a lot of business people just don't seem to get or to yeah. understand. I mean, um, we could say clearly that uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos is the number one and two richest people on the earth have super successful businesses. But I can tell you from uh, meeting those guys a couple times and listening to them and reading about them, they have not spent any time at all in nature. They don't understand their relationship with nature and they don't understand how their businesses are connected to a healthy planet. Now they have healthy businesses, but I would say they're only healthy in the short term and in the long term, they may very well be causing more problems than they are creating solutions because they don't understand that connection. Well, I think that's very true. And, and, and I think, you know, it's almost today experienced as a revelation that we've got to integrate sustainability or ESG into a business because it's integral to our business as if it's something new when it's so self-evident. So what you made, you know, you made the point there that the more time you spend in nature, the more you realize how fundamental it is to your business. So give us a couple of insights from your experiences in the natural world that you carry across to business. And just for those who don't know Rick, I want to give some context. Rick is one of the foremost climbers in the world. I mean, he was in the first American team to, to scale K2, considered the hardest mountain to climb in the world. I mean, even Rolling Stones said you are the real life Indiana Jones. So I don't know any better props than that. And I just share that as context. It's not like you're going on the weekend and just climbing a, a local hill. So, you know, with those experiences behind you and with the peers that you had, share a couple of those hard-won insights that you've then sort of ported across to business. Sure. Well, let's take your example of K2. Um, you know, that was a hard climb. Uh, as you said, it was the first American ascent of K2. We did the first ascent of that mountain without bottled oxygen. Uh, it was only the third time K2, the second highest mountain on the planet, had been climbed by anyone. Uh, and it was not just a difficult climb, but a very long climb. From the moment we arrived at base camp until finally four of us reached the top, uh, we were above 18,000 feet for 68 days. Uh, and we were at the end without food uh, and very even hardly any fuel to melt snow to make water. We, we pushed 
it as far and as hard as we possibly could to still get back down alive. So I got back down alive. Here I am talking to you. And I was 28 years old when I reached the summit of K2. And what I discovered is that I brought home a new yardstick to my life at sea level. That whenever I reached an obstacle and I was unsure I could get over it or solve it, a problem, I could go back to K2 and say, well, wait a minute, you did that. You stuck with it. You learned what tenacity means on the very deepest level. You so, need a lower bar, Rick. You need a lower bar. That's a pretty high bar for any of us to aspire to, but yes. No, yes. but we, my point is we can all, through our own experiences, discover our inner strengths and apply them to the problems and the challenges that we meet every day. Now, those are some of the things that I brought home from my life as a mountaineer and applied to my life as a business person, but they're very individual. Now, you might ask uh, what lessons could apply to a business as an organization, uh, and that might be it's equally, if not even more germane to our conversation with everyone listening this morning. And, and there I go back to what I said earlier about understanding how all of our businesses are connected to a healthy planet and that understanding that through our businesses, again, whether it's goods or services, we have a responsibility as business people to give back to support a healthy planet. You know, I learned that deeply at Patagonia because from the very beginning, uh, Yvonne Chouinard managed the company uh, to give back through philanthropy uh, to keep the planet Earth healthy. <laughs> and it still does that. It gives 1% of its sales, not profits, uh, good year, bad year, rain or shine. That money comes off the top, goes into a fund that then gets distributed as grants to groups saving our home planet, keeping it healthy, and not just environmentally, but for people uh, in societies as well. Um, and that's a responsibility that I think all businesses need to take on. And I think all businesses could learn from Patagonia's example. You talked about the arc of your life, and the book is a series of stories that really lay out the journeys that you've been on. But you know, look at the arc of the environmental movement since the 70s when you're involved till now. How would you characterize it? Is it getting better? Is business waking up? Are we just sort of obfuscating the issue even more? Is there cause for optimism? How would you sort of draw that line? Well, it is getting better. But the big question is, will it get better fast enough uh, to prevent all of us from collectively going over the cliff? Uh, in a cliff, I might say, that is caused not just by climate change as a crisis, but by extinction. Those are the twin crises that we face. But I am seeing uh, more people getting committed to solving those twin crises, to really addressing them systemically, uh, so that I am optimistic. And uh, I think that business has a responsibility and a role in solving those two crises that's perhaps bigger than um, any other part of our collective societies. Because governments are, not, are showing us that they're, they're not doing it fast enough. We've seen that time and time again. We saw it again after COP26. And also, um, civil societies don't have necessarily the power and influence to do it, but business does. It is a responsibility of all of us in business to use our businesses as agents for solving the twin crises of climate and extinction. Those commitments are creating business value for the companies that are making them. And that's why it's starting to scale. 
you no longer have to trade off those commitments for your bottom line because now your bottom line is supported by and even enhanced by those commitments. I love that because I was about to ask about, which is, you know, looking through the other end of the telescope, which is the lens through which a lot of business looks at, which is bottom line, P&Ls, balance sheets, and so on. Would you say the market forces are genuinely there now? And if they are, it's very easy to purpose wash, green wash, manage the optics. What do companies need to keep in mind so they do it right for the right reasons so it actually does work in their favor? Well, first, let's ask, you know, where, that, where does that business value come from? Uh, and uh, it comes from several different areas. You know, the, with publicly traded companies, one area it's coming from uh, are from the, the fund managers uh, who are creating uh, stock value. They're, they're starting to manage their portfolio with um, ESG screens, uh, and that's creating value. Um, banks are even beginning to give favored loans to companies who uh, have better ESG managements. Uh, let's say you're uh, in a business where uh, you're managing the carbon intensity of your operations. And then you find yourself uh, in a market uh, that is imposing uh, carbon taxes. Well, if you've been managing your, uh, your business uh, for reduction of carbon emissions, you're going to be at a competitive advantage against a company in your sector that's not doing that. And right. then finally, there's the um, value coming from uh, the increased awareness of these issues by consumers. And their commitment to voting with their wallets uh, with the companies and the brands of those companies that are aligned with their personal values, which are increasingly aligned with solving these twin crises of the climate and the extinction crisis. So that's where the business value is coming from. Now, you asked, well, how do you go about doing it in, in, a, in a real way uh, instead of a greenwashing way? And I would say there's a couple of things there. And the most important one of all is to go about it with transparency. and. The definition at Patagonia of transparency is another place where other companies and business people can learn because at Patagonia, we define transparency as the willingness to speak openly and fully to not only what we're doing good, but when we discover we're doing harm, to go public with that immediately. That's the operating principle of the company. It's in its actual articles of incorporation requiring the board to manage the company that way. And when you do that, when you discover that you're causing harm and you go public with it, as we did a few years ago at Patagonia, where we discovered we actually had slave labor in our supply chain with six suppliers in Taiwan. Instead of trying to cover that up, the initial reaction of all the upper management in the company was, oh my God, we got to go public with this. We've got to engage our stakeholders. We got to get a hold of the government in Taiwan. We got to engage all the NGOs. We've got to issue a press release that we got slaves in our supply chain, the opposite of what most companies would as a, as a response think of doing. But it really created so much loyalty and value with all of our stakeholders that it was not only solved the problem, but it built increased brand value for us. So and, transparency and I, is essential. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, what it also allows a company to do is to maintain the control of the narrative of their brand, because they're the one talking about areas they've got to grow in, as opposed to the media running off with a story, and then you're being reactionary and trying to manage it. So, you know, if you volunteer what's good, but not only also what's bad, as you've done with your Footprint Chronicles campaign and so on, you see, you see how you can sort of um, stay true to who you are, even as you've got areas to improve. Simon, you can do that, but, but yeah. actually it's much more important to do it in a way 
that encourages or incentivizes or attracts other people to talk about it for you. And then what they're going to talk about is how amazingly transparent you are. And when they do that, you're building a brand value that you can't possibly get from just talking about yourself. Right. Got it. No, absolutely true. And and it is, there's a lot of credibility that comes from those outside voices for sure. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always got in the back of my mind, you know, a, a solopreneur, a, a startup, a, a big company, a legacy brand that isn't Patagonia, that isn't privately held, that isn't Rick Ridgway, that isn't Yvonne Chouinard. You know, if you're in a leadership position in any capacity and you recognize that this is a moment in time on a personal and professional level to show up differently, where do you start to rally your organization around? Like what are two, one or two or three steps that someone could take where it's not inherent in the organization, but they want to make that change? Well, the first thing I think uh, a business has to do, uh, especially startup, uh, is make the commitment to be more than just about themselves and to, be, to make the commitment to be more than just about making money and creating wealth for themselves and for their shareholders. But, you know, to use the common lexicon now, uh, it has to be for their stakeholders. And then once they make that commitment, and it has to be real and meaningful, it has to be deep down and personal with the founders and the upper executives, with everybody in the company, once that commitment's made, you need to ask yourself, what am I going to do about that commitment? You know, what are the core values of my company that I can articulate in writing and share with everybody inside my organization so that we all know what those values are? Because once they're articulated, uh, once they're shared by everybody, those are the foundations of any company's culture. Right. And culture can be one of the most important uh, components of a brand and the foundation for any company's uh, success. So getting that down in writing, understanding what it is, and making sure it's more than just about you and your shareholders, but you and your stakeholders. And at the highest level, the biggest stakeholder of all is our home planet Earth and its health. And it has to ladder back up to that. I remember a few years ago, Rick, you may not recall this. I, I was on a phone call with you and I asked, where do you think the biggest opportunity for a competitive advantage for a company is today? And you actually said in its culture, how you treat your people. And to your point you just made, where do you win there? How, how do you do it? Is it who you hire in the first place? Is it institutionalizing those values? Is it training within? Is it celebrating the stories of employees? Because Culture has never been more sort of fragile than it is right now during COVID, the great resignation. So give us some pointers on how to really coalesce a culture that builds the business in service of the bottom line, but also the planet. Well, let's go back to Patagonia. Um, in 2012, Patagonia became the first B corporation in the state of California. And it coincided with uh, the California legislature uh, passing a, a law that required any B corp within two years to restate its Articles of Incorporation to reflect its B Corp values. I got the job of articulating Patagonia's core values. Right. <laughs> and I had a team, including a few lawyers, to, to help me with it. And it turned out to be one of the more important exercises in the company's uh, you know, history. As strong of a culture as Patagonia had, it really benefited enormously from synthesizing uh, its culture into its core values. And, and here's what we came up with. Number one, we're committed to building the highest quality, most durable, long-lasting products we can. Number two, we're committed to making those products causing no unnecessary harm to people or planet. 
Commitment number three, we are committed to giving back. We're committed to philanthropy. We're committed to giving 1% of our sales back to the health of the planet. Number four, we're committed to full transparency. We're committed to telling the world everything we're doing good and everything we're doing bad as soon as we discover it. Number five, we're committed to influencing other companies and other businesses from what we've learned. Number six, we're committed to our employees to make sure we do everything we can that they have healthy work-life balances. And most foundational, that commitment is centered around supporting their families through our on-site child development and child care support. Forevermore, the company has to operate by those six values. If the company 100 years from now faces an unforeseen transition event, those values can only be changed by a unanimous vote of the board of directors. Now, that's as good as we can do to memorialize those values uh, against unforeseen events. And we're hopeful, and Yvonne and Melinda Chenard expect Patagonia to be here in full health around those values 100 years from now. So powerful, you know, and, and so um, compelling to employees, you know, to see that the priority you give to them. The other side of the coin is your external stakeholders, your customers, your partners. And one of the things that Patagonia did so well, so ahead of the sort of larger business movement is to leverage the power of collaborative leadership, which, you know, Lead With We is all about. And you did this with the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, where unlikely partners at the time, like Patagonia and Walmart, came together. And you've got this industry-wide Hindex, HIG index in terms of holding yourself accountable. I want to know, what inspired you to seek the collaboration across the industry, you know, all those years ago? And then what was that first conversation with the CEO of Walmart like about working together to something that really required everyone in the industry to level up their game? Well, it was a bit of an accident. Uh, Patagonia had been in partnership with its trade organization, the Outdoor Industry Alliance, for several years, developing a tool that would measure the environmental impact of the companies and the trade organizations through their entire value chain. Uh, and I had been helping with that work. And then I had also been invited to help uh, Walmart with some of its sustainability goals, especially around uh, perhaps scaling its use of organic cotton. And when that was done, I was in a meeting with some of their senior executives, and they thanked us for all the help we'd given them. Uh, they were on a better path. Uh, and then they said, is there anything else we could do? And out of nowhere, it popped into <laughs> my head to say, well, you know, uh, what if you partner with us to in turn uh, invite other companies in uh, apparel and footwear to come in and develop a really robust measurement tool to measure both the environmental and social justice footprints of our companies through the entire value chain and to use that measurement tool to manage our impact? And they said, oh, that's a cool idea. I didn't tell them we already had a tool in parcel development. Uh, they quickly discovered that and said, you know, we ought to build on uh, existing efforts. And I said, oh, really? That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's always and, that, that comment just as you're walking out the door that wins the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they joined us. Uh, and now uh, we have the biggest trade organization in apparel and footwear on planet Earth. Uh, we've spun off the software we've developed into a for-profit company. Uh, that's scaling very quickly. Um, it only started two years ago. It's already got over 100 employees. Um, and uh, now we're at a, a turning point in the whole effort uh, that I predict we're going to be able to meet successfully, where we're going to take the tools we've developed, uh, the HIG uh, set of uh, impact measurement tools, 
that have scaled within apparel and footwear to the point where half of all the global production for apparel and footwear are using these tools now, you know, half of global production. And we're going to scale that to other categories of consumer goods. And I'm pretty confident the HIG will be the universal global standard uh, for measuring uh, environmental and social impact of the manufacture of consumer goods on planet Earth. And then through that measurement, globally, we can manage the production of consumer goods so that uh, they, you know, that year over year, we can show through very accurate measurement with validated data that's fully transparent how all the companies in this room year over year are lowering their environmental impact and increasing the social justice of their operations. You know, it's my dream, Simon, that uh, maybe 10 years from now, this effort can hold up to the world uh, a scorecard that shows that collectively all these companies making consumer goods have lowered their carbon emissions more than any single country on planet Earth. That's my dream. And we can get there. <laughs> I see the movement building momentum and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I want to speak to something that is inherent in the word consumers that is implicit in this whole dialogue around business as a force for good, which is a redefinition of growth, because it almost seems like business at large globally was acting on the presumption that we had a planet of infinite resources for decades. And now that there's a realization that you've learned more so than others, that we, we have finite resources on the planet. So what does this imply? And I know that Patagonia has leaned into the idea of responsible consumption and the responsible economy. Like, how does it mean we've got to grow less? Does it mean we've got to grow in new ways? Does it mean we've got to value things differently? How do we, how do we, what's that trade-off between building a business and serving the planet? You said you like stories. Here's one. All right. I live in Ojai, California, near Santa Barbara. Yesterday, I'm driving down the street uh, to go on an errand, and I see a pickup coming my way. And it's got really weird-looking headlights. They're like elongated vertical ovals. I had never seen that before. I go, ah, what's that? It gets closer. It doesn't have a grill. And I went, God, it's an electric uh, pickup. And then it passed me. I looked in the rearview mirror. It was a Rivian, the first one I've seen. And it was enormous. The thing was giant. Uh, it looked just like the other pickups, the F-150s and stuff it's meant to replace. Uh, and then uh, I read recently in that article, some of you uh, listening in may have encountered in the New Yorker just last week, I think it was by John Seabrook, uh, about Rivian and uh, the electrification of cars writ large. And in that article, uh, John pointed out that um, these new big pickups uh, by weight are about the same as World War II's Sherman tanks. And that if you really go through the life cycle analysis of buying and, and using one of these trucks and you sell your F-150, well, you've got to drive your new Rivian for two or three years just to offset the footprint of what a uh, fossil fuel vehicle, comparable vehicle would be. Now, the key word here is comparable right. because there are these monstrosities and nobody needs a truck like that to go to the store to get groceries. Now, you might need it if you're, you know, you got a big farm and you got to fill up the back with compost and that sort of thing. But let's get real. We human beings need to do something about our growth and consumption because it's not just about too many people on planet Earth. The real driver of the two twin crises of climate and extinction is too many people using too much stuff. 
So consumption is actually the key and root cause of those two twin crises. And we have to address it. We have to get over this um, value that we all seem to have that it's only good when it's bigger and better year over year over year. We've got to reverse that. Have you seen a different model out there? I mean, your contact in vast regions around the world, you know, indigenous peoples and so on. Is there an, another idea about the symbiotic relationship with the natural world and growth in that context that you might point us to? Well, sure. Um, if you look at indigenous cultures all over the world, uh, you know, you quickly realize uh, that there is a decoupling between stuff and happiness. <laughs> like, I remember being in the Amazon with the Yanomami tribe, uh, and I was going into a section of the jungle where no uh, outside explorer had, had really been. In fact, it was so remote, there was no human beings living in this jungle. And I, and I pulled in in my canoe into this Yanomami village uh, that had only been discovered by anthropologists in the previous 10 years. All the natives kind of ran down to the shore. They had their bows and arrows. They were really suspicious, but um, and we were in kind of potential danger. But we had a guy with us who knew how to speak their language, and he explained what we were doing, and that disarmed them. So they lowered their bows and arrows. Through the translator, said, "You know, we need uh, another couple guys to come with us to help us carry uh, loads uh, through the jungle." And the headman pointed to this guy, and, and he said, "Oh, this guy here can go with you, uh, and this guy over here." And I looked at these two guys, and they were naked. And all they had in their hands was their bows and arrows. I mean, I swear, this is, I'm not exaggerating this. Right. They, they had a tiny loincloth and they had their bows and arrows. And I, I said to the chief, well, tell them to go back to their hut and get their stuff because we're going to be gone for about a month. And he looked at me with this puzzle on his face and he said, they have their stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they don't need to go back to their huts. So you and me in a loincloth, that's it. That's all we need, Rick. I got, I've got the visual. Yeah. We can do it. Now, I'm not saying any of us go back and live in the caves uh, at all. No. We're saying that we need to live our lives with a different relationship with the stuff that we surround our lives with. Right. Now, remember that that brings up perhaps that famous ad that Patagonia ran that I was involved with on Black Friday, the launch of the biggest selling season uh, of the year. In the New York Times, a full-page ad of our best-selling jacket, and above it, that bold headline, don't buy this jacket. Right. And we put that in there because we wanted to shock people to read the copy. Because in the copy, we said, you know, no matter how hard we strive to make this jacket with no the lowest impact possible on people and planet, well, guess what? It's still left behind two-thirds of its weight in waste. Uh, it still emitted 20 pounds of uh, CO2 gas. It still used uh, 80 gallons of water. We had all the statistics there of its impact, no matter how hard we tried to reduce that impact. And the message was that if you don't need a new jacket, don't buy another jacket. Continue to use the one you've got. Remember I said Patagonia's core value number one was building the most durable the longest lasting, the highest quality product it can? Well, that's because that product will last the longest. It will service you for 15 and 20 years. And because it does that, you don't need to buy another jacket. Now that is the unlock. We're not saying you don't need a jacket. We're not saying you got to go out and, and kill a buffalo and make a, a coat out of it to live in your cave. 
But we are saying that you can be very comfortable in your life with that one jacket, and you don't need a closet full of jackets that you very seldom use. Understood, understood. And, you know, I want to speak to some of those programs that you've created to make those possible in a moment. But, you know, you talk about the urgency, the existential crisis that we're facing and and the climate crisis. And, you know, we are out of time. These timelines are contracting towards us. Uh, But it presents a challenge to a lot of businesses as to how bold they need to be. And a lot of them feel uncomfortable being as activist, perhaps, as Patagonia has been in the past, where it said, you know, vote the assholes out in, in labels and its clothing, or stop hate for profit campaign, or as you say, don't buy this jacket. So what would your guidance be as to how and when a brand shows up and to what degree they need to lean into a different tone of voice or be activist in nature so that they can serve their business as well as their values and, and the planet? I would say be bold, be brave, be bold bold and be brave and be honest and consistent with your values. And that goes back to defining what your values are. You got to do that. That has to be the core of the culture of your organization. But your organization, if it's going to be an agent for change and for solutions to these twin climate and extinction crises that we've been talking about, that organization, your business, It's got to be bold. And the good news is you can be bold and you can still be successful. And even if you have a consumer uh, pyramid, as it were, that is different than Patagonia's, which is at the upper tip, (laughs) and and, and that company has the privilege of having uh, customers completely aligned with its values, um, that you can still find alignment with your customers that uh, around your commitments, uh, and you can make your commitments bold uh, and brave. Uh, and you can still win loyalty from your customers because the customers are starting to change as well. And keep your eye on that. Everybody keep your eye on that because the shift's happening right now. It's happening very, very quickly. And to your point about being bold, but also backing up with walking your talk, you, you talked about more durable products. But can you tell us about some of the ways that a brand like Patagonia activates this? So like the Common Threads partnership, worn wear, recrafted, just show what does that look like in practical terms? Well, Warnware is Patagonia's uh, initiative uh, to partner with its customers to get the most use out of the products uh, that the company makes and that they buy. So the company is committed to making those products uh, with minimal impact on people and planet. Right. Uh, now, it can only that that is only half of that product's impact over its lifetime. The other half resides with the use and care that it's that the customers who buy the products from Patagonia use. And, and that's where the, uh, the, the, the ask to the customers to not buy more than one jacket comes in. But then once they do buy that jacket, then uh, we develop this warm wear program so that we can service through that jacket's entire life cycle our customers' use of the jacket to get the most out of it. So if it's broken, they can bring it back to us. We have the the company has the biggest repair center uh, for apparel in North America, maybe the world. Uh, and uh, we repair that jacket. Same in other markets. We've got repair centers everywhere we operate. Uh, we have mobile repair trucks that, that opera, uh, drive around and, and create repair events. If you're not using it anymore, it's still serviceable. Bring it back to us. We'll uh, fix it up. We'll clean it uh, with a, a no water technology that we have. And we'll resell it to our customers. 
you can go into Warnware on Patagonia.com and find uh, a full marketplace of used, uh, repaired, and restored uh, Patagonia products at very reasonable prices. If it's truly worn out, bring it back to us. We'll use the best technology available to recycle it. Now, that's a good example of a customer service program uh, that um, any company can embrace, and I would predict uh, uh, find value uh, in connection with its customers. Any area that you'd like to lean into more moving forward? What's your focus right now? My focus, I said earlier that I devote half my time to um, conservation and sustainability uh, nonprofits. I'm on six different boards now. One of them is a group called One Earth, which is just emerging uh, as an NGO committed to climate change solutions. And we are, uh, we've raised a lot of money to fund uh, dozens and dozens of scientists worldwide to figure out uh, what we need to do uh, with validated science to keep the planet at 1.5 degrees. And, and we're actually coming up with the solutions. And they fall into, into three main categories. One is uh, scaling of the conversion to renewable uh, energy. Uh, that science has been totally validated. Uh, the second is keeping uh, nature uh, intact on half of planet Earth. Uh, that we need to all collectively get behind the idea of using our businesses to support the idea that we have to let nature go about its business on half of our planet and we go about our business on the other half. Now, what we've done at One Earth is look at that in a very detailed way with tools that we've developed that are getting uh, increasingly refined, eventually down to a square hectare with where on planet Earth we need to leave nature intact and how we need to leave it intact and where we need to restore it to be intact and where on planet Earth human beings can go about their business to remain vibrant and healthy. And that work is nearing completion. And now we're tackling the third pillar, which is regenerative uh, food and fiber production. How exciting. I mean, it's sort of, you know, I feel like Rather than obstacles that threaten our future, we should be excited because these are innovation opportunities and they're just escalating as we're all putting our attention and resources there. So it's actually this rebirth of business that we're all experiencing. And I want to ask you, you know, one final question, Rick. You know, the book, you know, Life Lived Wild is just so fascinating for all the stories. And there was one, one quote that you mentioned. Um, I think it was when Chris Chandler invited you onto the Everest expedition. And, you know, um, I think he mentioned to you a quote by uh, Thomas, or you read a quote by Thomas Aquinas, trust the authority of your instincts. You mentioned that in the book. Having lived a life so wild and been so committed to the environment and so successful in business, what are your instincts right now? What do we need to do? Where should we go? Well, I think we've covered many of the things that we as business people need, need to do. And I've used my instincts to understand uh, the what those commitments need to be, uh, and those, but but those are instincts that have been honed in the in the wild world. And um, you know, I mentioned earlier, I named two guys that I don't think have spent much, if any, time in nature, and that's you know Bezos and, and Musk. And uh, my message to them is to carve out some time uh, and, and and get out into the wild part of the world and uh, and spend time there without a bunch of fancy support systems and learn learn from nature and bring those lessons back to the way you run business because then you're going to discover that long-term, your business cannot stay healthy if you don't support the goals of a healthy planet and get over this fantasy of abandoning our planet and trying to go someplace else. That is the most wrong-headed, short-sighted, 
ill-informed idea I can imagine. You know, if they're listening to this, I hope maybe this gets in front of those two guys. Let me tell you this to Elon and Jeff. We can easily turn our planet Earth into Mars. But I'll tell you, there's no way we're ever going to turn Mars into Earth. Powerfully said, Rick. And, and all I can say is thank you for your friendship, your guidance, and your leadership, both in your personal life and your professional life at Patagonia, and for everything you shared with us today. It was just such a pleasure to have you on Lead With We. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Simon. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead With We. Our show is produced by Goal 17 Media, and you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. Follow Lead With We on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also listen to Lead With We on all United flights on their entertainment consoles. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on your platform of choice. And you can also watch our episodes on YouTube at We First TV. And if you're looking to go even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book, Lead With We, which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you again soon, and until then, let's all lead with we.